Would you turn with me in the scriptures to John chapter 1? The Gospel of John chapter 1, beginning at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to tell his brother Simon, was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, which will be called, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked, come and see said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. And then if you would take your grace altar hymnals and go to the back of it, to the Heidelberg Catechism, to Lord's Day 12, It's on page 872. 
Actually, Lord's Day 11 is on page 872. But if we can read these words together uh, after I ask the question. So if you look at Lord's Day 11 for a moment, question answer 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? And the answer is, because He saves us from our sins. Salvation cannot be found in anyone else. It is futile to look for any salvation elsewhere. And then question answer 31 across the page. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance. Our only high priest, who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body, and who continually pleads our cause with the Father and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. Keep that open because I'll be referring to that as well as we go along. Brothers and, six, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, six weeks ago at the beginning of our series of sermons on stewardship, we began with the basic confession from Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and His alone. He's the rightful owner because after all, He is the creator of it all. And then as you may know or may remember in the weeks following, we went on to look at some of the practical aspects of stewardship or what it means to be trustees of all the things that the Lord has entrusted to us. And I hope and I trust that you've had some fruitful discussions in your community care groups. And today, as we bring the stewardship series to a conclusion, we, Pastor John and I, thought it would be once again good to have a look at the broad picture, and therefore, Pastor John addressed the kingship of Jesus this morning. Now tonight, I want to pick up on that some more, and also begin to make the transition to the Advent season. That season in which we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Uh, the season in which we are reminded that actually we're in a perpetual Advent season. Because even now we anticipate the coming again of Jesus. This morning as the children were brought forward. As they sat with Pastor John on the platform. He asked them this question. Who is Jesus? And that's the same question that I want to ask tonight. Who is Jesus Christ? Now, of course, he's the center of our entire enterprise as a church. He's what we are all about. Without Jesus, the season to come would be an empty season Without Jesus, the whole stewardship series would be, to quote 1 Corinthians 13, a striving after wind. But who is he? Well, we all gave that question and answer this morning when we said together the words of the Apostles' Creed. In the second article of that creed, we said... We believe, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Father's only begotten Son, our Lord. 
And so tonight, as we transition from the stewardship series to the Advent series, which we start next Sunday morning, I want to take a look at what we confess concerning Jesus Christ with basically an emphasis on Jesus' title, namely Christ, as discussed in Lord's Day 12. However, before we get to the title, we ought to note that an entire Lord's Day, namely Lord's Day 11, is devoted to the name Jesus precisely because of the importance of the name. After all, there is no other name, says the Bible and says the confession, no other name given among men by which we can be saved. The Son of Man was given the name Jesus precisely because it spoke so clearly about what he had come to do. Namely, save us from our sins. Jesus means Savior. And so in John 3.17 we read, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus. Now Jesus was the personal name that Joseph and Mary no doubt used to call their son for supper or, or bed or, or whatever. Jesus is the Hebrew equivalent to Joshua, a common name in Israel. And so while the Son of God bore the name Jesus, interestingly enough, that was not the name used when Andrew went to find brother Peter to tell him about the treasure he had found. Andrew didn't say, Simon, come, we have found Jesus. I wouldn't have meant a whole lot to Simon since the name Jesus was so common. As a Jew, Peter would not have caught Andrew's excitement since he wasn't awaiting someone by the name of Jesus. Rather, he, like all the Jews, was looking for the promised Messiah. As one writer put it, Israel's national purpose was to produce the Messiah. That's why it was so awful in the Old Testament to be barren, not to be able to bear a son or any children, because that meant that you would not be the mother or the parent to the Messiah. And that's why Andrew was so specific. We have found the Messiah, which the writer then goes on to tell us, means Christ. And later on, when Jesus asked his disciples as to whom they thought, they thought he was, Peter immediately answered, not you are Jesus, rather he answered, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Actually, as one writer put it, one has to be a Jew or very familiar with the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, to appreciate the word Messiah. And somebody else was telling us about the Messianic Jews, and they said there's a large number of Jews over the last decades who have reverted or converted to Christ, but they don't call themselves Christians, interestingly enough. They call themselves, what I said, Messianic Jews. They mean to say, we are what we have always been, Jewish people, but we have found the Messiah, and his name is Jesus. We are Messianic Jews, or we are Jews for Jesus. Anyway, whereas Jesus is the personal name of the Son of God, Christ is his title. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Messiah. And the word Christ or Messiah means anointed one. 
It's a title that spoke of Jesus' position, of his office, much like prime minister or president speaks of their particular office. And you were anointed to this particular office. Now, the business of anointing someone to office is found throughout the Bible, and, and you know that. In the Old Testament, for example, a prophet or a messenger of the Lord would be sent by the Lord to a specifically chosen person to anoint that person as king of Israel or of Judah or as a priest or whatever the case may be. And when the prophets, like Samuel, for example, would do this task, he would take a ram's horn filled with oil and then pour the oil over the head of the chosen one. And upon pouring the oil, the prophet would then declare the Lord's message and declare the individual king over Israel or over Judah or as a priest or whatever. And oil was used because oil, abundant because of the olive trees, was a symbol of life. It was a symbol of gladness. It was a symbol of comfort, as in the oils used in medicinal purposes. Oil was a symbol of spiritual nourishment. It was a symbol of prosperity. It spoke of riches and holiness, and therefore was a wonderful symbol to use in the consecration of a king or of a priest. And having oil poured over one's head symbolized the consecration, the making holy of the entire person. Having oil poured on a person also meant the Lord had called that individual to a particular office or to a particular task. And the anointed was then called to serve as the Lord's representative before the people. Prophets, priests, Kings all had their separate offices and they were all anointed for their specific tasks. And since anointing was considered to be a special sign, it followed that the person who was anointed was also considered to be special. Which is interesting. So we read that David, even though he was hunted by King Saul, and even though he had been ample opportunity, given ample opportunity to kill the man who sought his life, nonetheless he always spared the Lord's anointed. And David constantly had to remind his men that Saul, as wicked as he had become, nonetheless was still the Lord's anointed and therefore God's specially chosen servant, chosen to represent the Lord to Israel and to fulfill the Lord's purposes for Israel. And so David could not bring himself to bring harm to the king that sought to bring harm to him. Anyway, that all having been said, in the second article of the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus Christ is the Anointed One. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament ritual of anointing. He is the Anointed One who made up for and paid for the failure of all the others who were anointed before Him. He is the one through whom all the promises of the Old Testament were now accomplished and fulfilled. All the Old Testament anointing of prophets, priests, and kings anticipated, looked forward to, or were types of His anointing. And it's through Jesus Christ alone that salvation came to Israel 
And that salvation comes to all of God's people. He didn't come to do his own thing, but he was chosen and appointed and then anointed to do the Father's will. And so Jesus was under heavenly orders, so to speak. As Jesus himself said in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus was anointed to fulfill a very special task, a task unable to be fulfilled by anyone or anything else. But he was not anointed with oil, like in the Old Testament. But according to Acts 10, verse 38, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and with power from on high. And that took place on the day when his cousin John, the last of the Old Testament prophets, anointed Jesus or baptized Jesus. Maybe you remember the story. As Jesus was being baptized, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in the form of a dove, a dove and a voice from heaven was heard saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At that point, Jesus was anointed. And not only was his anointing special, but Jesus was also special, since there is simply no other Jesus Christ but this very one revealed by the Bible. And as we read in Philippians 2, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place. That is, this Jesus of the Bible, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is the Lord's personal name. Christ is the title that speaks of the offices he bears. And the Heidelberg Catechism refers to three offices borne by Christ. The office of prophet, priest, and king. And if we had time, we would look at even further because those are the same offices that you and I bear, bearing the name Christian. Christ had to fulfill all three offices in order to completely carry out the task that he came to do. And question and answer 31, if you have it in front, open in front of you, tells us the very first office Jesus was ordained to do too is our chief prophet and teacher. Now there were all kinds of prophets throughout Bible history, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jonah to name but a few. The last of the Old Testament type prophets was John the Baptist. These were specially chosen people commissioned to speak the word of the Lord to the people of their day. God always gave the prophets the words, the words to speak, words either of warning or punishment or comfort or encouragement, whatever the case may be. And whatever words were given, they always pointed to the Messiah. They always pointed to the anointed one, to the one who would outrank them all. Then along comes Jesus, the chief prophet. Not speaking for God as the other did, as the others did, but he spoke as God. He is God after all. He is the word that John 1 speaks about. You know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. 
And whereas in the Old Testament and even after John the Baptist, God's word and will for his people came through simple men with the coming of Jesus Christ, as we're going to celebrate in another month, the word walked right in and among the people in the person of God's Son. Whereas the, the prophets of the Old Testament could only appoint ahead to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus pointed to himself and he said, Today, in your hearing, this Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah concerning the suffering servant has been fulfilled in me. And elsewhere, Jesus said, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So as he fulfills the office of prophet, then we hear Jesus speaking the word of the Lord and calling all people to repentance and to faith. And in doing so, says answer 31, he perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance. He does that by being the living word and by living what he preached and by being obedient to the Father even unto death. Prophet. The second office that Jesus fills is that of our only high priest. Now the purpose and the function of a priest in the Jewish faith was to be that intermediary, remember, between the people and the Lord and the Lord and the people. And so the priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people of Israel. And then in the, in the offering of the sacrifices, he would plead for the forgiveness of the people's sins. And once the ceremonies were finished, the priest would then come to the people and declare the Lord's forgiveness and the Lord's blessing on his people. And so if you remember what Zechariah did and what John the Baptist did, then you'll remember what a priest does. Now the Catechism teaches, Hebrews teaches, that whole book teaches that Jesus is our only high priest. That is to say, he is our intermediary. That's important because that means we don't need to go to any one per person to receive forgiveness of our sins. The priesthood is obsolete in a manner of speaking. That is the Old Testament priesthood because we can now go directly to Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. We don't need anyone to speak on our behalf to the Lord. Remember that curtain in the temple torn in two at the time of Jesus' death telling us and declaring that the temple and the sacrifices and everything in it was now obsolete because now the Lord was living among his people through the working of the Holy Spirit. Jesus pleads our case before the Father, and he makes all things right between us and the Father. He did that, of course, by doing something that more than any earthly priest can do. He became the very sacrifice the priest places on the altar. He is the Lamb of God who gave his life. He set us free by the sacrifice of his body, says answer 31. And we see that visibly displayed every time we partake of Lord's Supper. The sacrifice that he gave was a once-for-all sacrifice, as Hebrews 10, and it's the only sacrifice able to save us. And because Jesus is the priest, the perfect priest, because he's the perfect sacrifice for our sins, priests and sacrifices really are no longer needed. Now the only sacrifice we are called upon to offer is the sacrifice of our living selves, as Romans 12, 1 puts it. Lives of thankfulness and joy to the Father because of Jesus the Son. 
And then the third and the final office that Jesus fulfills is that office of our eternal king. And I hope that as you read Article 31, you'll notice, or question answer 31, you'll notice how incredibly personal the catechism always is. Our prophet, our priest, our king, my prophet, my priest, my king. The comfort of the Christian is that because of the Word made flesh, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are bought by Jesus. His answer, question answer one talks about we're not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death to our, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He rules over us now. He is our Lord. That's a wonderful thing. You see, once a Christian things change. Once you're a Christian, you no longer belong. We no longer belong to ourselves. That is to say, we can no longer simply unilaterally decide the use of our lives because now the Lord has a claim on us. And since He is the ruler of our lives, of everything, we must be constantly asking ourselves the question as to whether or not what we are doing fits into His will and into His way. It's to him, after all, that we owe our allegiance. He's the king. And we must and want to live according to his word, the Bible, and we must be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. As our king, says answer 31, he governs us, he guards us, he keeps us in the freedom he won for us. What a king. That is, as a king, he makes known his will and he governed and the rules which govern the kingdom. He lets us know the parameters in which we are to live our faithful lives. And then he preserves us in our faith so that, says John, no one can snatch us out of his hand. In other words, to use the old Reformed expression, once his child, always his child, by grace. And then the neat thing, too, especially in a world filled with ISIS and with those who would have nothing to do with Christianity, he also continues the work already begun, which will destroy all the things and all the powers that stand in the way of the kingdom of heaven coming to its fullness. Jesus Christ, the anointed one, anticipated by, for centuries by the Old Testament church, has come. He's that priceless treasure that Andrew got so excited about and that he shared with Simon Peter. Our prophet, our priest, our king. And in those offices, Jesus perfectly works for our salvation. The late Dr. Gordon Spikeman put it this way in summary, quote, As prophet, Jesus proclaims his kingly message with all the compassion of his priestly heart. As priest suffering on the cross, he testifies in a prophetic way. And with kingly authority, he opens the door of paradise to a repentant sinner. At the time of his kingly ascension to glory, as a prophet, he gives his apostles their marching orders, and as a priest, he lifts his loving arms in benediction over that little nucleus of the early church. Beautiful, 
Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Upon hearing all of this, is it any wonder that Christians prize the name of Jesus and call themselves after his official title? We're not Jesusites, but we're Christians. We have found the Messiah, Andrew said to Peter. What about you? Found the Messiah yet? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a wonderful message. What an amazing Lord you are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, that you fulfill those three offices so perfectly and all of them are fulfilled for our salvation. Thank you that you are the Messiah and that we may know you by grace and that as a king, you are someone who never, ever, ever, ever lets us go. And there is nothing that can separate us from your love. We pray, O oh Lord, that we may know that to be true for ourselves and for all of your people. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we may live in that joy and in that comfort. Beautiful Savior, King of creation, Lord of all, to you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.